Simon Court is the spokesperson for climate change local government, including Three Waters, Infrastructure and Transport for the ACT Party. And with so much going on in those portfolios, we thought we'd grab him, grab the opportunity while he's in Auckland to have a bit of a recap and talk about the latest uh, what's going on in relation to your Three Waters campaign and hopefully but touching, touching on ours. Simon, thanks for joining Taxpayer Talk. Good morning, Jordan, and good morning to all your listeners. Thank you for having me today. Let's start with Three Waters. Uh, you've have in, uh, had uncovered last week from a question to Nanaya Mahuta. You asked her the elephant in the room question and got a direct answer for once. Um, take us through that. So a few weeks ago, I asked Nanaya Mahuta, what evidence did she have that Iwi Māori had interests in Three Waters assets? And her response was she had no evidence except that uh, Māori had the same interests in Three Waters as any other ratepayer. Now, of course, we know that, but that's completely at odds with uh, what this government has said in the past about iwi Māori rights and interests in Three Waters. Yes, I mean, she's dressed up Three Waters as being required or the co-governance aspects of Three Waters being required to comply with the treaty. One of the things that everyone's been asking, or if you're opposed to Three Waters, is, well, hang on, none of these assets existed um, at the point in in 1840 when the treaty was signed. Um, What did she say then that proprietary interest in the Three Waters assets are? So the question was actually answered in the House uh, last week by Grant Robertson standing in for Minister Nanaia Mahuta, and he couldn't give any answer to that, except to say that Māori have rights and interest in water under the Treaty of Waitangi. Now, there are some claims before the Waitangi Tribunal, such as Naitahu, which have expressed a right and an interest in water. They are yet to be determined, yet the government... But hang on, that's water, not the pipes and assets that are the three water assets. That's right. So the government is conflating two separate problems where there are treaty claimants who have historical grievances that are proven by the court um, and rights and interest in water are part of a settlement. That's quite different from saying we need to uh, give co-governance rights to iwi Māori groups, to selected individuals to have a say as to how Three Waters assets are run. Because that's not going to solve the problem of getting sewage off the beaches and making sure that safe drinking water is available to people in communities across New Zealand. There is a problem with Three Waters in the way it's been managed and delivered over the past 30 years. There's a water quality issue when it comes to drinking water. There's a problem with stormwater and sewage, as I've said, in, in, uh, in rivers and on beaches. There's a problem with the infrastructure funding and financing model. Co-governance solves none of those problems. So is the real politic of this that government wants to be able to recognise Maori interests in water, know that that's almost politically impossible, as John Key um, created this this fiction that no one owns the water, uh, um, which to which the lawyers um, put their heads in their hands um, on, on, on statements like that, because of course ownership is just the rights attached, uh, is it what's really going on? Does the government just see this as a backdoor way to acknowledge uh, 
ownership in water for iwi, but they know they can't do it. So the three waters is sort of that back door that, for example, um, so iwi groups can get water royalties, etc. Look, I don't have insight into the thinking of Minister Nanaya Mahuta. Even the cabinet paper that she put up to cabinet in June of last year has been pulled down, it's been largely redacted, and then put back up in a different part of the oh, DIA website. Oh, I, was try- I was literally trying to find yeah. it in the weekend again. So, okay. Yeah. Yep. So, so look, again, I don't have insights into why they think this is necessary, but... It is time to have honest and courageous conversations about the challenges that we face in New Zealand, dealing with a $110 billion infrastructure deficit in three waters, and then looking across the wider economy into how we de- how we deliver better healthcare, better education, where the infrastructure is going to be uh, delivered, who's gonna fund it. None of these issues are actually solved through co-governance. What they ask, what they are doing with co-governance, it seems to be a distraction and it is actually a sop to the um, internal factions of the Labour Party mm. rather than actually solving a problem for deprived communities around New Zealand, um, many of which are largely Māori in remote parts of New Zealand which don't have access to basic services like clean drinking water. That's the problem to solve. Yeah, on, on Thursday night uh, I'm speaking, it's a it's not going up on taxpayer talk, it's going to be a private chat with the, I think it's 8,000 or so people that have, that have chipped in to our three waters uh, uh, various uh, uh, fundraisers, particularly we, this crowdsourcing we've done um, to help fund the water users group litigation, which strikes the very heart of the government's purported justification with three waters, basically asking the court to review Nanaya Mahuta's claims that the co-governance was required in order to comply with the treaty. Is your question or your, the acknowledgement from the minister, both the written question, which I mentioned earlier, and your oral question in the House, to, uh, uh, to Grant Robinson. Is that significant in that court case? Well, look, I'm only aware of the court case and the um, and essentially the statements that uh, the Water Users Group are seeking from the Crown, uh, that there is no right or interest uh, for iwi Māori and Three Waters assets. I would hope that the Minister's response and Grant Robertson's response last week in the House actually puts a line under this, that the government can come back to the court and say, actually, the water users group is right. Uh, There are no iwi Māori interests in three waters assets built after 1840. Uh, So let's move on to solving some real problems that New Zealanders need us to solve. And that's actually building the infrastructure that we need in towns and cities to allow for growth and to build more houses where they're needed. We have a housing affordability crisis. Uh, It's to make sure that we have the right transport connections so that people can get around their towns and cities so that freight can move between ports and businesses. People can get to work. Everything back to message. Very good. (laughs) Very good. They're spoken like a true politician, Simon. Just, um, um, well, I'll certainly put those questions to um, Steve Franks and Bridget Morton on um, on Thursday. And um, in fact, I'll, I'll make sure you can invite to that call if um, if you are interested on the insights and putting any questions to Stephen Bridget. I just want to go back though because it's a challenge that 
we as a taxpayer group have faced in that I mean, we're our primary concern with three waters is obviously the economics that you're not you know clearly there's room for improvement with the governance of three water assets in New Zealand some councils are doing very well some are abysmal uh, but to throw, throw the baby out with the bathwater and go to a, a co-governance model with in fact not just no protections against rent seeking actually design it so profits or surpluses can't be distributed back to councils but can be uh, to uh, to iwi groups i want to ask you though how much is acts concerned with three waters based on the co-governance or based on the economics of it probably not being cheaper and more efficient for ratepayers well, look, I'm a recovering civil engineer who uh, now has the privilege of representing people as a member of parliament. So I see it firstly through my civil engineer's uh, spectacles, which is that it's a problem to solve for infrastructure first and foremost, infrastructure funding and financing. Co-governance is a distraction which really is largely singing to the, uh, to the faction in the Labour Party which has a large influence on uh, the Labour leadership, and that is the Māori caucus. So clearly, while Labour has a supermajority, there are things that different factions within the Labour Party want to get over the line, whether it's co-governance or whether it's fair pay agreements, uh, and yet none of these things actually address the real problems facing New Zealand, which is that our wages and salaries have fallen way behind those of our neighbour Australia, that the cost of living is going through the roof, that we need to find hundreds of billions of dollars to pay for infrastructure, and yet the government's ruling out public-private partnerships. In fact, last week in the House, when I asked the Minister, uh, would uh, or have they asked iwi Māori groups, particularly those post-settlement iwi who have money to to invest, would they consider investing in three waters assets through public-private partnerships? The minister, Grant Robertson, started talking about privatisation as if none of these things actually matter to the government, solving the issue of the infrastructure deficit and building better stuff so we can build more homes. That's actually not the problem they're trying to solve. They're trying to solve political problems within their own caucus. OK, I'm going to be devil's advocate here. One of the issues, and I, and I think it's a smart thing for ACT to be pointing out and linking it to the housing crisis, one of the issues with housing, um, particularly uh, in the Upper North Island, is you build a house but can wait years for it to be connected to the water network. And at least in the case of water care, you have to pay enormous development contributions to get it done. That sounds a lot like telephone or electricity prior to the 1980s reforms. And I ask you, why wouldn't you want water infrastructure run like the electricity lines where, okay, you've got natural monopolies, but incredible uh, uh, regulation, price quality regulation by the Commerce Commission. Why wouldn't you want... I know that that the government likes to whack act and say, well, this is just an agenda for, for um, privatisation, ignoring the elephant in the room that they actually are privatising this in the form of... Um, iwi groups will be able to rent-seek from the model they've picked. But I put to you, why wouldn't you put that up as an alternative when you've got electricity lines that works very well now and telephone? You don't wait six months for a telephone line anymore since, um, uh, since privatisation. Why wouldn't you have that for water? Well, you make a very good point. In fact, one of ACT's founders, Richard Preble, uh, recounts often that uh, as a member of parliament, the most correspondence he ever got was 
his constituents writing to him asking could they please get their phone put on and what influence could he have with the post office uh, so that they could get their phone connected sooner. That's the situation we've got to with water. Uh, there was a, a woman in South Auckland in Karaka who's been waiting more than two years to have her water connected even though the house is built. There's a whole subdivision out there. Um, none of this stuff is difficult to solve. Water falls from the sky. It I ends up in so, a dam. So you're saying that that Act is comfortable with with um, privatisation? Well, let's assume we need a very large amount of private equity to match whatever amount of money the government can put into developing and improving infrastructure. We do have an enormous infrastructure deficit. The Infrastructure Commission has said that we must get better at public-private partnerships or using special purpose vehicles, for example, which is where essentially um, a type of company is set up funded by the private sector to deliver public goods. So that's infrastructure, whether it's water services to the front door. Now, water has been uh, essentially a taboo item for governments over many, many years. But uh, this morning I heard on the radio that a town in the South Island has run out of water because one of the bores is run dry and the other is only trickling. Well, we do need to value water in a way that means that uh, the highest value use, and if that's drinking water for people, uh, is actually a service that we're prepared to pay for. Well, Currently we pay for the infrastructure, we but that we don't pay for the water. And what you're describing is water care, and I mean that, that, that leads well into my next question, and I mean, uh, uh, my background's law. You know, we're trained to worry about risk. Your background's engineering. The incentives for lawyers and engineers is the gold plate. And as a taxpayer organisation, we're naturally concerned when Nanaya Mahuta stands up, and what does she say? It's like 190 billion. It's like two thirds of the economy of the, in a year needs to be put under the ground into pipes and um, uh, uh, um, uh, and water. Now that makes me one very suspicious, but two very worried that what we're going to end up with is a regime that simply incentivises burying as much gold as possible um, to satisfy, with respect your colleagues, the engineers, who are trained to worry about risk. How do we get an efficient trade-off there like we do with, with electricity or telecommunications? Yeah, that's a good point. So I heard Bill Bayfield, who's the uh, chief executive of the new water regulator, Tamara Arawai, that was set up by the government in response to the Havelock North inquiry. And that solves the problem of water quality. Now, what he said this morning... Because we should just be clear for the listeners, the Royal Commission or the, the government inquiry, whatever it's called now, into Havelock North was very clear that actually it was a regulatory issue fundamentally, That's right. which has already been solved by an earlier piece of legislation through That's Parliament, right. separate from, well, part of the Three Waters reform package, but not totally separate from the uh, from the governance model. Yeah, and there's a case to be made that the Water Services Bill setting up this regulator, Tamara Arawai, was the only thing the government needed to do because what Bill Bayfield said today was that in the last two years, councils have doubled their investment in three waters infrastructure because they knew a regulator is coming and they don't want to be the first... Uh, council to get prosecuted for giving dodgy water to their citizens and, and ratepayers. So look, you could say that actually simply setting up a, a market regulator to enforce a minimum standard of quantity of quality and quantity for those who need it 
is all you need to do. And none of the other things, as you've described, these three waters, uh, water services entities reforms that set up four massive water corporates and that do, in fact, encourage burying gold under the ground because they'll want to level up the infrastructure across the whole of New Zealand. It's just not practical, let alone cost-effective, to say you're going to provide the same level of service to a community of 10 people in a remote place as it is to a community of a million yep. like, in a city like Auckland. So and that's Phil Goff's point, that that actually it's been set up explicitly to cross-subsidise, where that you know that here in Auckland we will pay for Northland's, Northland's water. Yeah, and to some extent cross-subsidisation already happens, but the problem is that the projects that have uh, the highest amount of public attention or, or that get the most uh, public attention and financing are not necessarily the ones that benefit more remote communities or even parts of the city like where I live. I mean, you take the Central Interceptor project, for example, it's a billion-dollar project through the centre of Auckland to, to divert wastewater to the wastewater treatment mm. plant at Mangere. Until that project is built, you cannot deliver um, high-rise and high-intensity in the central and western part of Auckland. So that's a worthwhile project. It's going to unlock more housing. But then you look at West Auckland, the northern interceptor isn't going to be upgraded till the mid-2030s, maybe 2040. We're still going to have sewage floating, uh, flowing onto our beaches and into our rivers. This is when it floods. This is, this is, uh, this is unfortunately some... Uh, sewage connections are connected to the stormwater system. When we get a big lot of rain, it's untreated. It goes straight into the harbour. Well, that's that Watercare's right? argument, but in fact, their own analysis and investigation has shown that's not the case. The problem is there's simply. Two oh, sorry, no, it's the other way around. It's yeah. stormwater connections going into the sewage network, which yeah. which um, overwhelms that when it rains. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right, but. Um, the major problem they've got is that the infrastructure is very, very old. They don't know where the water's coming from. It's not coming from houses that are connected unlawfully. Uh, and until they solve this problem, uh, another billion-dollar project, all of the development that's planned in the north and west of the city, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands more people intended to live there, can't proceed because there won't be infrastructure to connect it to. Now, these are really important problems to solve. I'm going to get in trouble here but it's, um, because I'm jumping the gun slightly because we haven't yet released the data. But um, in the next few weeks, uh, our sister group in Auckland, the Auckland Ratepayers Alliance, will be releasing some data on staff within Watercare. Look, I'm happy to put on record, and I have a number of times, that actually Watercare is probably the best performing CCO in terms of benchmarking for value for money. Well, since 2018, that is just out the window now. Um, staff has gone up by about a third. Um, as far as I know, there's not a third more houses we're, we're servicing. Um, the water quality in Auckland is pretty is, is pretty good from the start. Yep, I get that there's some issues around the stormwater, which which you just covered. But it is incredible to see, you know, back uh, three years ago when uh, Watercare was benchmarking and showing to be okay in terms of efficiency compared with Australian and um, and UK counterparts. Uh, and yet now that's sort of, instead of going, oh, well, that's very good, we need to stay where we are and keep the drive for efficiency, they've loosened the belt big time. 
Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll, we might get you back on the program on um, on. And, and again, I mean that makes um, that makes the case for an economic regulator yeah. for water services entities exactly. at the same time as as a quality regulator in Tamara Arawa. I just want to um, before we leave three waters and co- and co governance, there is just one other thing that's happened the last uh, sorry last week, and that is that the prime minister announcing that there would be a, a we don't seem to have much details around it. You might know more, but a review around co governance. It seems strange that you would continue with Three Waters and the co-governance of, of that when the government is separately consulting on the concept of co-governance and what it means. Will, will the overall review delay Three Waters, do you think? Look, the government appears to be reacting probably to what uh, people are telling it, that they don't see a need for co-governance of entities like Health and Three Waters what they see a need for is better services delivered to people who need them. So I would suggest that based on the government's track record around Three Waters, they're already recruiting people for these new water corporates. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're already setting up boards of governance. There's no indication that the government's going to uh, going to do anything different than what it said it will do with Three Waters. So uh, I would suggest that... A, a, um, an inquiry or having a look at co-governance is, is merely an opportunity for the government to say, hey, look, there's nothing to see here, but we're having a look at it anyway. So you think it's a way that they park the issue or say, look, we're having a review, don't worry about it, while they sneak through their agenda anyway? Yeah, they're not even sneaking through Three Waters. They're advertising for roles and they're getting uh, ready to set up the new Three Waters entities, those four large corporates that will that um, will combine dozens and dozens of councils with widely different uh, assets and rating spaces across New Zealand. So we now want because the bill was supposed to be arrived last year and they've, they've now put it off twice. Uh, I'd put to you that that is, that, that, that is at least some um, credit goes to ACT and some credit to the Taxpayers' Union for our various campaigns on that. When does it come into effect and when are you expecting the bill? So apparently the bill will be introduced to the House round about June. What ACT has asked for is that when the bill is introduced, whatever form it's in, that it's given a full select committee uh, time frame, sure, which is about six months, yeah. uh, to hear submissions and to report back. Given that the uh, Department of Internal Affairs timeframe is is that the bill needs to be passed by the 1st of September, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they try to force it through under urgency. Uh, Act will be making... That would be outrageous. That would be outrageous. Act will be making the case that because uh, the reform justification so far has been so poor, um, so lacking in evidence, that they shouldn't uh, shortcut the timeframe that the House and select committees get to have a look at this. I want to um, finish off the interview by asking you about your other big portfolio, and that is climate change. Uh, saw some, um, I mean, what are we, Monday today, last Friday, the ute tax came into effect. Um, there's a lot of very happy electric um, car drivers with their eight grand uh, subsidy from the government, from the middle class. The farmers rightly say, well, hang on, we don't have a... Um, we don't have an alternative. In fact, it, it made me laugh a few weeks ago when the Prime Minister was talking about an EV alternative. And it's a ute that, that only tows half a tonne. Like it's just utterly, <laughs> um, utterly impractical. My car tows more than that. Yeah, and it's just, just, just <laughs> madness. I mean, they're just totally out of touch. And I have a theory that it's um, it's too many policy analysts in Wellington without kids that don't even understand that actually you need a, um, you need a car to get, get, get round. Um, if you're a family. But 
I want to talk about there's a lot going on in this space, although not the same sort of um, public discussion. Uh, Matt Burgess, an economist from the New Zealand Initiative that uh, we've had on this podcast numerous times and has certainly been extremely helpful to the Taxpayers Union um, in guiding us uh, through this intellectual minefield, has left the New Zealand Initiative and has become the head of policy for the National Party. But I note over the weekend, the National Party... Uh, climate change spokesperson Scott Simpson appeared to be taking the same middle of the road I'm going to say it virtue signalling approach ignore, continuing to ignore the elephant in the room of every time you make an intervention in an area covered by the ETS all you're doing is well, you're doing nothing because you're making the emissions available elsewhere because it's a fixed cap model this is this idea of the waterbed effect and National are doing exactly what Labor are doing, which is basically, look, we care about climate change because we're writing checks, while ignoring it has no zero impact on New Zealand's overall emissions and actually makes climate change mitigation more expensive. So my question for you is, one, how do we get the Tories, sorry, the Nats, to see sense on this? And two, and it's, they're related, is how do we educate the public and ensure that the media are asking the questions so the government doesn't continue to get away with, you know, they're talking literally billions in this year's budget on climate change stuff, get away with writing checks for absolutely zero gain in terms of emissions. Yeah, well, two great questions there. Firstly, um, how do uh, we get the National Party in a future National Act government to behave uh, in a way that actually conforms with the evidence. So we've got an emissions trading scheme that covers uh, all New Zealand's emissions, except agriculture right now. now. The government can set the cap on emissions, um, according to the Climate Commissioner. We're already heading for net zero 2050 without the government putting a single new policy into place. And yet, as you've said, um, not just Labor, but the National Party as well, have a whole lot of climate policies um, that sound like, as you said, writing checks to people for Teslas. So the way the New Zealanders can stop that happening is to uh, vote for ACT and get more <laughs> ACT MPs elected. So uh, that's that's what we're, we'll be asking for um, as we approach the election in 2023. Now, the second question is, uh, how do we get... New Zealanders who are concerned about climate change, it's a global problem that we are emitting more carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels to the atmosphere uh, than would happen naturally. And so, look, the ACT's philosophy, ACT Party's philosophy is polluters should pay. But this is an issue that is a global issue. And even if New Zealand stopped all of its carbon dioxide emissions from burning gas and oil and diesel overnight, it wouldn't make a jot of difference to what happens uh, with the planet's atmosphere. So we need to do our bit. And so what ACT says is, look, the emissions trading scheme provides a mechanism for businesses that emit uh, carbon dioxide, can't reduce it because, say, their industrial and trade well, practice... It's also just so much yeah. cheaper than what the government's interventions in terms of... Well, even at $75 a tonne, which is what the mm. um, carbon units are trading for right now, it's much cheaper than, say, the $800 a tonne that the government wants to punish fuel companies with yeah. if they don't meet their biofuels mandate for a certain percentage of biofuel in diesel. Now, the fuel companies have said, look, we're just going to have to go and bid for the stuff on the international market against every 
other country whose government is also subsidising biofuels. Look, can't we do something else to mitigate our emissions? And hey, guess what? But we could not, buy credits under the emissions trading scheme. So what the government's about, though, is it is it wants areas where people can see emissions being reduced, right? And that's the sort of you know the invisible hand of the ETS. You know, the problem is is that it is invisible. We don't know. We can't possibly know the cheapest way to reduce our emissions. But the thing is with the ETS is it sets up the uh, incentives so that the marginal, the least costly way to mitigate is priced out. How do we get that message over to the public? Because it's a eureka moment. When I explain it to people, it becomes infuriating every time there's a climate announcement that they're aware halving the costs of public transport. But hang on every journey not taken on the road, the emissions are available somewhere else. That's right. So if you look at the building and construction industry, uh, the concrete, the amount of carbon dioxide uh, involved in making concrete has reduced by 20% in New Zealand in the last 20 years. That's because the companies that make... No government intervention No government intervention required whatsoever. It's It's the price signals coming from having to buy carbon credits under the emissions trading scheme. Now, you know, the guys who make cement have substituted coal with shredded tyres and waste timber. That now makes up 30% of the fuel that they use to heat the limestone. The guys who make um, concrete at the batching plants have reduced the amount of energy that they're using. They've got much more efficient plant and now they're actually injecting CO2 into the concrete at one of the batching plants I went to so that it's trapped in the concrete forever. And that becomes a chemical reaction where buildings in the future, well, even now, are actually going to be able to store carbon dioxide. None of those stories are being told outside of the industry because uh, they're not uh, glamorous, but actually it's these small incremental improvements, continuous improvement and efficiency in response to price signals that will reduce emissions in the long term. Why isn't the government, sorry, why isn't the media holding the government to account on this? I mean, even the UN, and I get that centre-right audiences aren't the great fan of the, of the UN's intergovernment panel on climate change, but even they say it's very clear Once you've got a comprehensive ETS, or if you've got a comprehensive ETS, do not intervene in the areas it covers because it has a, um, it actually has a detrimental effect. Why isn't Jacinda Ardern, uh, um, Green Party uh, co-leader James Shaw et al being hammered on this every time they get up and make these expensive announcements? So look, um, just for the benefit of your listeners, I want to let them know the ACT Party does hammer them on this (laughs) and and, and, and whether we're speaking or heckling uh, from two seats away, we don't let them get away with this stuff. But the problem is that the message is very powerful to a group of people who, who really do think that in some ways the world is ending because of climate change. And it's even more important that we have policies that work rather than just about signalling. Well, that's ACT's offer. I mean, when I came to Parliament in my maiden statement, I said that I would be a radical environmentalist, but not in the way that um, I'm chaining myself to the gates of anything, but actually advancing real solutions to real problems that we can solve quite simply through engineering, through science, and, and through getting better data about stuff. The emissions trading scheme is the best way to reduce emissions over time. All we need to do is let the emissions trading scheme work. The price will set the signal to those companies to reduce emissions. The, um, the, um, I'm conscious we're, um, we're running out of time, but the, there has been another 
um, division between the ACT Party and the National Party to do with climate change, and that is in an area not, or one of the few areas not covered by the EGS, and that is agricultural emissions. And I, um, there was media last week that the uh, ACT Party has taken the position of Groundswell NZ, which is the farmers that had the very, um, the very loud protests, uh, or the very loud tractor peaceful protests, not to be confused with the other ones, uh, last year, and they are resisting He Walker Ihanoa, um, whereas the National Party, the traditional um, beef and lamb, dairy and zed, etc., uh, are supporting the government's Iwaka Ihanoa. I do need to declare that um, a an interest here, and in that um, my company did a website for Groundswell on this issue. But um, my question for you is why is why are you and Groundswell right and why is Dairy NZ, the National Party, uh, beef and lamb wrong? So the agricultural sector has been forced into the Hiwaka Ekanoa consultation group by the government who threatened them with either you come up with your own plan that we will approve or we're going to force you into the emissions trading scheme and you'll have to pay uh, for every tonne of methane that your cows or sheep emit, you're going to have to pay um, a, a fee through the emissions trading scheme. Now, what Axis has said is that until the government has the data that actually allows farmers to record not just what their emissions are, but how much carbon they're taking out of the atmosphere, how much methane they're taking out of the atmosphere through growing stuff. And look, that's a well understood process. That's called the carbon cycle. It's called photosynthesis. I mean, these are not concepts that ACT came up with. This is third form science. This sounds pretty far right, these ideas. <laughs> and, and yet um, the, government's, the government knows exactly how much the ag sector emits. Yeah. What they won't do is agree on a figure as to how much they're actually recovering from the atmosphere. It may well be that New Zealand farmers, who are the most efficient in the world, actually are at net zero emissions already. But until the government actually says, well, here's a system where we can record emissions out and what you've taken from the atmosphere carbon back into mm. the soil, what ACT says is that they shouldn't go into uh, a carbon pricing scheme until all of that information is available. DOC is doing studies right now on how much carbon native forests soak up. We know that Massey University scientists are doing the same thing for how much carbon New Zealand soils soak up with different kinds of pasture and uh, forage grown on it. Now, this stuff is uh, this is stuff that New Zealand could excel at, but unfortunately, the government has has preferred to see farmers as the enemy, see them as an opportunity to raise more money through the emissions trading scheme without actually wanting to solve the real problem of how do we mitigate our emissions on the environment. Yeah, the, the other thing that I wasn't didn't really have my head around until recently, which the, the, the farmers make the point of, is that the big boogie, boogeyman is methane emissions. Because methane is a far worse... Uh, um, uh, greenhouse gas in terms of the warming it causes uh, per tonne emitted. But it's a short-lived gas, meaning it breaks down very quickly. I can't remember, 20, 20 years is in my head, but it's it, it's much, much shorter. Uh, and so what the farmer's point is, well, hang on, as long as we're not emitting any more methane than we were 20 years ago or the, the time it takes for the gas to break down, those methanes are not actually contributing to warming because it's the same baseline 
as it was as, as it was before. There seems to be though just a, a reluctance from Wellington to sort of um, to, to make some of these concessions because it's almost turned into a punch and Judy show or us and them or a um, a sort of uh, I was going to say religious but an identity thing. How do rural communities sort of make their voice heard and respected in Wellington without having to resort to 40,000 farmers turning out on tractors? Well, rural communities are going to have to vote more ACT MPs into <laughs> Parliament if they want to have their voice you might say heard that. in Wellington. <laughs> and Jordan, that's because despite all of the evidence, and you've mentioned short-lived gases, you know, methane's a short-lived gas, carbon dioxide takes a lot longer to break down in the atmosphere. The science is well understood. The United Nations uh, Climate Change Panel has said, look, let's adopt a new standard that actually recognises... It methane. discounts methane. It discounts methane. Yeah. And yet our government is persisting with, uh, you know, the status quo from 2015 as if no other science and new data is available. It looks to me as if it's merely, um, you, you mentioned it's a religion. You, you did say, look, is this associated with people's identity? I think it's going to be very hard for a prime minister who said that climate change is her generation's nuclear moment. There were James Shaw has gone to Glasgow and announced enormous emissions reduction With his staff. Yeah, that's right. That even his own department's Ministry for Environment and others said it's not possible for New Zealand to cut emissions that much. So look, let's let's put aside where uh, the Green and Labour government has got us to and potentially where National would keep leading us to. And look, let's recognise the obvious, that the more ACT MPs you have in Parliament, <laughs> the better public policy you're going to have. And that applies to the rural sector and every other sector. Well, given how a message you've been, I don't think we'll have you back in election year because it will just turn into a into an ACT Party broadcast. But Simon Court, uh, spokesperson for Transport, Infrastructure, Environment, Climate, in- Climate, Energy, Resources and Local Government for the ACT Party, thanks for joining Taxpayer Talk. Thank you.